I am surrounded by things that are amazing and magical, and I have an abundance of food. So what the fuck? Like, what am I scared of? Like, if my life stayed like this for forever, what is there to be afraid of? Nothing could harm. There's no fear. This is Audience of One, and I'm your host, Spencer Kier. This podcast is a venue and excuse for me to explore my curiosity through combos leading thinkers and builders. My guest today is Andrew Rose. Andrew, along with his wife Priya, are building The Neighborhood in New York City with the goal of bringing together 1,000 forward-looking, abundance-minded friends within walking distance of one another. Andrew and I talk about community building and bringing friends together, isolation, implementing the right social technologies, balancing contentment and ambition, and much, much more. Please enjoy. Give the context on on what you're doing because I think it's uh, it's novel, especially in the the day of online global communities. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think there's a lot of ways to describe what we're building, but like the most basic uh, premise or like the object level is we're trying to gather 1,000 uh, friendly, ambitious, nerdy. Um, people or like maybe abundance minded is a good language it's it's so hard to label because like really when i say this i just mean people who treat each other well and um people who don't just treat each other well but also treat future people well and treat strangers well people who are kind of um looking to always become better in that way but that's a really big bar and it's really difficult to label and and people from like literally every single culture fit it in so many cases. Um, but we want to gather 1,000 of those people in a single place in New York because I find that my people, this gets into the why, are spread out and it doesn't make any sense. Like, why are all my friends so spread out? We all live in the same city. Why, why is it that my best friends, the people that I would collaborate with, the people that I believe in and trust and like want to succeed in the world, I have to commute 30 minutes to see and they have to commute 30 minutes to see me, um, what would happen if instead we lived down the hall from each other so that I could knock on their door and deliver them food when I had extra or um, invite them over when they're feeling sad or um, whenever they're really excited to work on a project, they can just come over and start working on it right away. I think that when you, when you think of it just between two people like that, it can already feel transformative. What if I live next to my best friend? But then you start to think about well, what if you live next to not just your best friend, but your best community and your best three communities? And what if you live next to your best university class and your best professor and you live next to like your best uh, chef and restaurant and like the, the density effects? This is really what cities do for us. They give us a density of social connections so that our graph is way closer. So you can have a guy or a gal for everything. You can have the person who cuts your hair and the person who cooks your meat and the person who like comes over and helps you when you're feeling sad and all these people can be within walking distance and this means that our problems are solved a lot more effectively and we get to specialize on the sorts of things that we provide unique value for um, one of the things that's really inspiring for me is people's university experiences and this is, gets into another why which is like why is it that we give up on the idea of happy ambitious like dreamy sort of community after college um but in fact like when we're in college we're somewhat immature and now as adults it's like so much easier to moderate a community because everybody has lived life people are like married and they're having kids and they like know what their goals are it's actually much easier to have the sort of community that we had in college but 
instead we're all separated so it's impossible to the parallels to college is what immediately stands out to me uh being able to walk down the the hallway to somebody else's door um being embedded on a a campus that has more uh walkability more access um and and it's interesting when you when you talk about it in the context of new york which to everyone already feels like a pretty co-located condensed space um but once you're living it, like you said, and you've got a friend in Williamsburg and one in Manhattan and one in Brooklyn, uh, you're not actually living as close to each other as as it feels when you zoom all the way out. It's almost like you're you're increasing the gravitational pull around you is the way kind of I'm visualizing it. Um, yeah, there's definitely something about gravity. And I think the other thing is just there's there's a distinct difference. Um one of the metrics I like to keep track of, and it's a little bit funny, it's a little bit of a joke, like you can't take anything too seriously in general, especially stuff like this. But it's like, how many people, how many friends, unique friends, do you look in the eyes per day? On a given day, uh, a fifth of one, a fourth of one. I mean, aside, aside from my, yeah, my right. wife. And talk to when they live in New York. I'll ask them this question and they'll still say like one, sometimes half of one. It's like, well, what is happening? Like what is happening that you're living in the densest city in America? Like you're living in a 10 million person city and you still only see half of a person per day. Um, maybe you see your spouse, you know, but not counting your family. That is, it's really crazy. It's really, really crazy to me. I, I suspect there's no time in human existence really where it has been true that we look so few people in the eyes per day. Um, what do you, what do you attribute that to? Is it, um, yeah, I mean, I, I could rattle off a handful of, of possibilities, but you've been thinking about this far longer than I have. So once you take, I'm, I'm curious about your opinion as well, but my first, like the first thing I want to jump to when I'm asked questions like this of like, Oh, like why, why are people lonely or why are people isolated or something is I just first want to say like, well, it could just be that we've lost the habit. Like we, ha we haven't trained that muscle. Um, and, and then there's a question of like, well, how did we get here? Like, how did we lose the habit so much? Um, but I do just want to point out that like, sometimes things are just a little bit, they feel a little bit unnatural. There's a little bit of friction and like, we just don't improve our circumstances. Like people do this all the time. And then if I were to like say, how did we get isolated? Um, what sorts of, changes happened i would say like there's been a big pressure for people to succeed in a way that causes them to move out of their life to like abandon their hometown or abandon their friends and and i don't mean that in a negative way like i did this you know i moved to san francisco and then i moved to new york from arizona which is my hometown and i think what can happen in that process is that you all your network becomes professional it becomes difficult to make personal connections uh you're not embedded in any institutions or communities that like bring you in as kind of a default friend or kind of a default trusted member and building that trust takes time and then we get back to that habit thing that i'm saying like once you have moved out of your hometown to a strange place and for two years you haven't really made any close friends why are you gonna make close like when how are you like two years is so much habit that accumulates I don't know, maybe you have a deeper answer. No, I wouldn't say I have a deeper answer. I would, I would, uh, yes, and that in the sense that I think, especially over the course of the last three years, 
Um, although we're seeing maybe the pendulum swing swing slight back, slightly back. Uh, we've been driven more and more into our homes um, for all facets of living. But I think especially work, like work is the one forcing function to get you out of the house. You just, you got to do it. Um, and so for someone like myself, who's now working out of the house, uh, unless I make an intentional decision to get out and see a friend or go to the gym, even if I go to the gym, I'm, I'm not going to see a friend there. Um, I'm just going to have less of that social interaction. And, and I think the larger, larger point here, which you touched on in regards to habits is, uh, we're just taking the path of least resistance. Like it, you, you have to, you have to make the effort to have these interactions. Whereas, uh, you go back thousands of years ago and we were all, uh, next door neighbors and you just walk out your door and you see them. Um, and so yeah, that that's yeah. probably the best explanation I have. And then just our, I I think the what's taken the edge off of that is the fact that we do have access to, uh, to phones, to the internet, where um, I can see you like this, and it feels like it's satiating like some part of that desire to have human interaction, such that I don't like if I was just living in a rural place, isolated. I would feel like I need to get out more and, and see more people, but this is allowing me to get some of that taste of it uh, so that I don't feel as much loss. Yeah, I, I love that. I also think you touched on something, right? Which is like, people are busy, man. Like the fact that we have to ex we have to put in effort in order to see our friends is the opposite of what seeing friends should be like. Seeing friends is not an effortful action. It should never be an effortful action. Like seeing friends is like you come home to your dorm room and people are there waiting for you and you like kick back and this mm. is the most relaxing part of the day. Like seeing friends is like you come back to the campfire after a long day hiking and like you're around the campfire and you're cooking together and you're relaxing. Like seeing friends should not be something that you have to schedule. It should not be something that you have to like plan in advance, something that should feel stressful. And so when it is, you end up with an equilibrium where people stop seeing their friends. Like, of course they do. It's just it's work. In one of your essays, and I think you maybe originally got this idea from Henrik Carlson, who was also on the podcast, um, and maybe even he got it from somebody else, this idea of reversing the centrifuge, which is basically that, uh, and, and feel free to correct me if I'm wrong, um, basically this idea that we have broken out or, or kind of compartmentalized all of the functions and the individuals in those functions or in those stages of life. Uh, such that they're no longer kind of commingled, um, and and you want to reverse that uh, through what you're building in New York. Can you talk more about why we've gotten to this place where we've uh, we've separated all these functions and stages of life, and why it's so important to to pull them back together? Yeah. So the first question, why? Like, why did we separate things? Um, I, I mean, I think. I think nobody knows totally, but if I were to hypothesize, it would be something like, well, it was, it must've been efficient, right? Like it must've been convenient for people. Um, I can see this in my own life. Like if you said, oh, hey, Andrew, you either get to stay at home commingled with your home community, or you get to go off and pursue your career, the career that you want, your dream. Like literally what I wanted was to build an engineer systems, like more than anything. It's like you get to go be an engineer and you have to go leave and you have to go specialize and you have to go hang out with other engineers in the engineering community where people are doing 
fast-paced engineering work. I would say, and I did say in my life, like, yes, I'm leaving. Like, I'm going to go specialize. And I don't think that's wrong. I think it would be it would be frustrating and overly conservative to say that that was a wrong thing for me to do. That was like what I wanted. Um, and I thought it was worth the trade-off. So maybe there's a, a valley of community that we have to pass through in order to get to more flourishing careers or, or more flourishing like work. I don't want to say career because I think that implies something a little bit too like social framed or whatever. I, I guess I just mean work. Um, I think work is a really important part of life. And by work, I just mean the thing that you do with your energy, the thing that you put your life mm -hmm. force into. And um, if I want to do my best work, I have to find the people who can help me. And that means specialization in a lot of cases. So we create all these specialized institutions. And then we start to separate them out. Maybe universities become a little bit less efficient. Universities become a little bit more about undergrads, a little bit less about commingling researchers. Um, and then, you know, you look 50 years down the line and, and maybe we just end up having all these uh, weird specialized industries. As to what I think we need to do about it, um, I think it's somewhat obvious. Like, you need to build multidisciplinary communities where people are able to do their best work. Like, you just have to have both. You can't make the trade-off. And so if you build a multidisciplinary community, but people feel like they have to sacrifice their work, like I'm not allowed to be an engineer anymore, I have to like go become a farmer, then I just won't join. So I think there's maybe room for a new type of university or a new type of campus or a new type of community, like whatever you want to call this thing. But like groups of artists and creatives and engineers and scientists need to come together and they need to say like, hey, we're going to solve the problem for ourselves of building an economy and building childcare and building an education system and like moving our careers forward. And one of the ways we might solve that is by um, trading with the city. You know, I like we, we might send our kids to public school. Like that's not the point of the solution is not we need to do it ourselves. But the point of the solution is that if you aren't kind of a multidisciplinary tribe of people making these decisions together, then what reason do you have to commingle? Like what reason do you have to trade your skills or to teach your specializations to the next generation or whatever? One of the things I think the most about is how uh, I think apprenticeship, like the ability, work in public has gone away. So people who are growing up don't get to see our most valuable work. It all happens on our laptop screens. And so like what room is there for my child to sort of see the beauty of engineering in the world? Like engineering is locked behind closed doors. It's in labs, you know, but if it were in the community, then, you know, maybe... And so was art, and so were all these other careers. Then maybe you have this mingling effect where people start to see that as virtuous again, instead of just a career path. And I think in the age of the internet, we're uniquely positioned to do this on two fronts. One is uh, you, you've used the internet to find the people to co-locate with in New York. It wasn't just all existing friends. Maybe at this point now, you've built a critical mass uh, or kind of a, an atomic network. And, and through that, you can start to, to continue to add on the fringes. But I know initially you were using even like Craigslist to find these people. Um, so there is, there is an opportunity to leverage the internet to help with the physical co-location. But then also um, we, we can build communities 
obviously absent the the physical element, but in terms of the structure, the governance and, and the way in which people organize, you can also do that online. So you have kind of these two fronts where we can do it simultaneously um, and making those spaces both in person and online permeable so that I have my engineering setting, but then also that uh, kind of naturally moves in towards the, the design area of our co-op or, um, you know, the, the more artistic one or the, the writing one. And I, I want to interject like really quick. Yeah. Like it can be easy to to get caught up with specific structures of organizations too, which I, I call these like social technologies. So like a cooperative is a form of social technology that we have created in order to structure financial incentives around the group. And if that doesn't work for you, and instead you want to be a bunch of like independent contractors who are like exporting your trade to people, like that's totally fine. Like these social technologies exist to serve us. You don't make a co-op because like, oh, I believe in cooperation. Like, no, co-op doesn't mean cooperation. Co-op is like a specific financial model that you get to use. So I think some people can get timid around the idea of community because they believe it's all like hippy-dippy shit. And the thing I want to point out is like when I say community, I'm talking about the quality of relationships between individuals. Like how many people do you look in the eyes? That's why I bring that up. Like how many people do you trust? How many people do you feel safe with? How many people do you call your friends? And then this kind of second quality when we're talking about commingling, which is like, well, what are the quality of those people? And what are the quality of those relationships? Are they between politicians and scientists? Or are they all only between scientists and scientists? Are they, you know, do they commingle between every part of our culture? And, and when you put it on that human level, we're like, this is about relationships. This is not about financial or economic structures inherently because those things exist to serve relationships, um, then it can be easier to realize that this, this stretches across the aisle. This is not something that only exists on one part of the political spectrum or one part of the cultural spectrum or whatever. That's an important distinction. And I think if you were to, which you have plans for, and you're kind of already doing as you're building it, if you plan to blueprint this or open source this, those two components you talked about seem like they would be the pillars of it. I'm curious... So that's kind of the 80-20 the on this. But if uh, you flip that, I'm curious what the, the last 10% you think is to making this uh, exceptional. What, what do you have to get right in the details to make sure that this is uh, a thriving structure community? There's a million tiny things you have to get right. It's like there's, there's the classic quote. Uh, I, I, can't, I can't quite remember it, but it's something like... Um, why why do entrepreneurs have to have such strong opinions or whatever and it's like because they have to be right a lot and being right a lot is an important part of building anything um you have to be right about like what time you cook and how you cook and like the rules around using the kitchen and you have to be right around like how often people can be around and you have to be right about kicking people out and letting people in and um building relationships and moving people around when the fits aren't there and like there's a million small things you have to be right about the ratios like the the diversity of your community because if you don't build a properly diverse group of people you create this the commingling doesn't happen and people start to see it and it degrades the culture slowly from the inside it's actually very poisonous but um but it's easy to ignore and um like the 10 percent is kind of in everything if i were to say kind of one thing that wraps it up as in like what do you have to get right it's like 
nothing is outside the realm of being deliberate when it comes to building a society. And that means like the bushes that you plant and the trees that you plant and the way that you talk to people and whether or not somebody comes now or next year, whether like there are some people where it's like, oh, is this person a fit for the community? And the question isn't like, are they a fit forever? It's like, are they a fit in this moment for this exact group of people that we have right now? Because I know them all um, and I can model how they would have relationships with those people. Or are they a fit like one year from now when the community has grown like by 30 more people or whatever? I mean, it's, I mean, it's everything. And so it's a little bit like entrepreneurship. It really is. I mean, it's social entrepreneurship. And I, I want more people to be doing it. Maybe that's the last 10% that I would, I would push on the most, which is like, if you don't start to federate this and make yourself useless, like you need, you need to make it so the community will not die if you die. That's like the number one most important thing. And if that is your goal, I think you'll start to do everything right. Like you'll start to be deliberate about everything because you realize that the only way to build something strong where everybody is a leader is to be very deliberate. You uh, intentionally said that you think there are a variety of financial and governance structures that can fit with your aims, but I'm curious which ones you're using uh, in your community and your experiences with those so far? I would say Priya and I are just exceptionally liberal people uh, by, by nature. So like we don't like it when people tell us what to do and we don't like to tell other people what to do either. And so our, our technologies are going to synergize with that sort of way of life um, naturally. So the ones that we use, and, and the reason I, I give that like little prelude is just I want people to know that different ways of life are possible and you can use different technologies based on the way of life you want. It's not like the ones that we're using are the most successful. They're the ones that enable the type of lifestyle we want. But um, the ones that we use are like a lot of federation, huge, huge amount of federation. So we, what that means is that we distribute responsibility and leadership uh, across the organization, like in nodes kind of. So you create like a core pattern of what something might look like. And then you give other people power to do that without asking you or without asking your permission at all. Um, and then we tend to do that kind of at every scale. So there's no like weekly community meeting. There's no monthly community meeting. There are no community meetings at all. Um, the community meets because the community has relationships. And if the, all the relationships died, then the community would die. And so there is no like top-down structure, which is created to try to like force the community or whatever. There's no top-down governance mechanism there as well. But what we do allow for are for people to be like more or less community leaders. So Priya and I, for instance, we are like managing, like we're, this is complicated. You could almost think of it as like community managing, like four of the 10 units that are in the community. So those other six units, Priya and I literally don't touch. Like we're not leaders there. We don't influence them. Like sometimes we'll help them in a lot of, meaningful ways like maybe they have rooms that they need to sublet and we'll refer them to people in the network um we're friends with them we'll share dinner they'll come over to our house like you know all the normal things that neighbors have but it really is more of a neighborhood in that sense but the four units that we community manage those four units uh we have much more control over so we end up like subletting them out to specific people we advertise those units we decorate them we make sure they're furnished and we make sure people are having a good time and so 
there's a sense in which we're able to take on as much responsibility as we want. And then everything else is kind of on other people. It's similar with the economic system. So again, there's no like taxes or tithing or anything like that. But also we have something called Wealth Squad, which I really love. But Wealth Squad isn't something that the whole community does together. Wealth Squad is something that Priya and I specifically do with some of our favorite friends who are our neighbors, where we basically meet um, once a week, sometimes multiple times a week. And we try to help each other's businesses succeed. And we basically try to help each other uh, like become wealthy. We have other things like that. I have a research group that, again, is just being done with my neighbors. We have um, a, like an art and creative kind of cooperative that is being done in the organ or in the neighborhood with a bunch of neighbors. There's a few people doing like a coaching class, and then of course Daniel teaches Maximum New York. Um, so it's almost like a university campus. I think is maybe the best way to think of it, which is like there is no real. You're not forced to join any club. And yet you could join as many clubs as you want. You could even lead as many clubs as you want. But there is no like top down one sort of thing that you have to do. It's sort of a complex system in that sense. Like there's a lot of emergent phenomenon. Right. And do you see the same structure because it is so federated and not top down, easily scaling to your, your thousand person goal? Or do you think there are other kind of organizational layers you'll have to add in or, or new practices you'll have to layer in uh, to support that growth. Yeah, inevitably there there will be. Um, even as we've grown from like ten, six people to 35 people, like we we have to invent new social technologies at every step. So in the very beginning, Priya and I would host dinners every Sunday. We'd host a dinner party. And that was basically enough for the full community. And when I say community, I mean like the extended community, all of our friends, even the ones who don't live with mm. us. Um, it would be enough for the whole community to kind of get together every week and have just a good time and kick back and talk about ideas together and stuff like that, make art and play music. But um, then that dinner started to become a bit overwhelming for Priya and I. It was too big, too many people. The community had grown too much. So we had to like scale it back. We stopped doing them. What was cool is that when we stopped, a bunch of people in the community started their own dinners. So now there's like five dinners that go every and they're all like small subsets of the community. So you can already see there, well, there's an evolution that happened, um, which is very interesting. And it evolved to solve a problem and it happened like very naturally. But then that means what what about when the whole community comes together? Like what is what is that? So Priya and I are looking into retreat centers and we're trying to figure out like, oh, is there something that we can do maybe once a quarter that like brings everybody together? And again, just like the Sunday dinners, you don't have to come if you don't want to, but everybody's invited. Um, so that there are these opportunities for like big, full community gathering, um, like a party. And then we also are looking at conferences now because we have like a much larger professional network. So like just on the professional stuff, what does it look like when you're talking about wealth squad, but the squad is 50 people like you can't just sit around right. a table that wouldn't be effective. So what are the effective ways that humans coordinate 50 people to work on careers together? And, you know, the classic thing is a conference so and, you know as you scale you're naturally going to have to invent new sorts of technologies that help you and i suspect there will be governance mechanisms too like once you have a thousand people you probably need like an hoa you probably need some set of laws you probably like people are going to get get into disputes that require resolution and most people don't want to mm -hmm. live under a monarch so that means we're going to need to build some sort of, you know government system
whether today or in the future, is there a place for a uh, an online community that kind of sits outside of this apparatus but interacts with it? Um, or do you want to be intentional about only having people who are physically co-located be a part of the official community? Like I, I know you as an individual, you're active on Twitter. You have your own friends who live in other cities. Um, is there kind of a, a formalizing of that that you want to do where there becomes this physical and online arms to this community? I don't even want to formalize okay. the physical community. Like when like you say something like official community, there are no official community members. Like, you know, like we already have a Discord server that a bunch of community okay. members are in. Um, and they like whenever they're visiting town, they'll message us and they'll be like, oh, hey, do you have a room? Do you have a couch to crash on? And like everybody's there. And so there's already that space. And then there's Twitter as well. Like so many of us are on Twitter. I will consistently get people who DM me on Twitter and are just like, hey, do you have a place to crash? So in a way that system already exists. But I really I and again, this has to do with how Priya and I are. I'm not saying it's correct, but I just have a deep distaste for like official community. What does it mean to be a part of an official community? That's not real. Like that's not in your body. That's not in your relationships. There's no spirit of officialness that is in community. Community is about a felt sense that is based on the relationships that you have. And you either have the felt sense or you don't have it. If you have it, then you are in fact a member of the community. And it doesn't matter whether you're online or not. Like if you feel like you belong here, then you can message me on Twitter. And so in fact, you are in the online community in that case. And if you don't, then why would being part of a Slack make that real, you know? Um, anyway, I think there are real arguments against what I'm saying, but that's like my default. Well, the, th the, the, more you, the more things you formalize, the more things you become responsible for. Whereas the way you're going about yeah. it right now, uh, you're only responsible for the things that you truly care about. You, you don't have to formalize things that, like you yeah. said, already uh, already resonate and you feel. Um, as, I, as I was reading a lot of your essays and, and thinking about this, um, I had kind of a, a like high elevation question around. So, so one of your or maybe the objective with, with doing this was to, uh, as you said, be able to look more friends in the eye on a daily basis and yeah but but there there's also something downstream of this that is that that i've heard you mention which is if you get a bunch of people together who are more or less aligned on a vision they want for the world or even their immediate physical world um it's those kind of environments that lead to outsized impacts on the world um and so there there's this question that arose which was uh trying to understand the directionality here did you build this because in a selfish way you wanted to bring people together and just a byproduct of that would be that uh you could have this outsized impact or do you think that there's kind of this larger responsibility we have to fellow humans that you solve in in two ways one is by bringing those people together you kind of de decrease loneliness and depression um but then also can impact uh you know the larger environment by pooling that social capital i mean okay. the truth is that it's both I, it's it just definitely it's both 
Um, and like I often will say, golden ages aren't just possible, they're inevitable if you're strategic. And why, why shouldn't they be, right? Like what, what is this that we think history happens due to luck? Or that like the ages of humanity happen due to luck or our circumstances happen due to luck. Like, yeah, like luck plays into everything. But also, you know, if you get enough people together and you strategize together, you defy luck. That is the whole idea of cooperation between human beings. And in, with given the technology that we have and the information that we have, you know, like I already have this question. I'm drafting an essay right now, which is like, look information age happened in the i mean you could say like it really started scaling in the 90s and then took off in the aughts so given what happened in the 90s and the aughts why aren't we living in a golden age in the 2010s and the 2020s what happened every single person on earth has access to all the knowledge they need to do anything they want like you want to become a farmer like you can look that up on youtube there's a tutorial you want to like become an engineer up oh, there's a tutorial for that like there's an edx for it you want to become an artist actually like the entire pathways to becoming a creative artist are like written about and free but even though any sort of thing that we want is available to us we didn't enter a golden age i don't see that as pessimistic i see that as optimistic that's an opportunity it's like oh clearly there's this technology that we have access to now and the circumstances like the wealth the abundance the amount of energy the amount of information that would make it so that a sufficiently collaborative group of people who are able to pour all their energy toward making the world a better place would be able to move way faster than they would have been able to 50 years ago, way faster than they would have been able to 100 years ago. And it's not close, but it's not happening. So why? That's an opportunity to solve that problem. So there's definitely a part of that. And then there's also a part of like, okay, hey, like you can't take life that seriously all the time. And you have to realize that like, you know, everybody's just... Like, you need to be happy with the outcome where nothing mm. big happens. You need to be happy with the outcome where, like, you live your life, you raise your family, and you die, and you enjoy your memories. And so I think in some ways I'm always optimizing for both. Like, how can I live a life that I would be proud of even if everything I did failed? And also, how can I set myself up? for the greatest possible ambitions so that instead of going through dark ages, we go through golden ages. And instead of living through times of, you know, fear, we live through times of happiness and security because ultimately that's like the greatest gift that I could give to um, the people that I love and to the future people that I will love who maybe aren't born yet. Um, My expectation was that it's going to be both and that it's more nuanced than I was painting it as. Um, it sounds like you have, you've developed, and I saw this in, in one of your pieces where you talked about uh, suffering, you, you've developed this great balance of creating a kind of low baseline for contentment, but then also main, maintaining this desire for ambition um, and incredible outcomes. And that's something I've struggled with immensely in my own life. And I'm wondering what the it's one thing just to say that and say like, oh, it's as straightforward as just be content with with no outcome, but then also hope for the best. But like tactically, what is that? How do you cultivate that mindset? Yeah, that's a great question. I think that's the right question. So at the end of the day, when you're trying to say like, how do I cultivate a mindset? Really, you're actually saying, how do I cultivate a body feeling? Um, 
like you 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 exist in a mind body system and your mind affects your body and your body affects your mind but like when when we say like how do i feel at peace with um suffering or like how do i feel at peace with the idea that like i might fail you're really talking about how to quell some anxiety that maybe exists in your chest for a lot of people it's their chest um but you know maybe in your gut for some people and you can identify where it is and you can also identify where it isn't like maybe it's not in your calves maybe it's not in your toes or whatever maybe it's not in your head um so that that tactically is not really what i'm going to initially talk about it's just I think when we give each other metaphors, what we're really trying to do is we're trying to point people to different ways of embodying the problem. And so I'll, I'll give a couple examples of that that have helped my mindset. Um, although if you wanted to go like really deep on this, you know, obviously you could study meditation or something. But um, for me, I one thing that helps me embody the problem is to think about my ancestors. I think like what would... Like I, like I look, I literally look, I take a second, I like take a deep breath and I feel my room. I have a microphone. I'm talking to you over the internet. Like I'm talking to you over like <laughs> beams that we send to routers that like, it's, this is it's insane. I'm listening to you over headphones that were engineered over like thousands of years of audio engineering. Like everything is magic. I have a bag there that's like sewn. I have a light here. I uh, I have glasses like and then I, I think to my fridge my fridge is just in the other room I can feel it I can embody like I can feel that fridge in my body somewhere I can like imagine it so to speak and in the fridge it's filled with food and I'm not very wealthy like I'm I don't make very much money right now but my fridge is filled with food and I have a pantry full of food too and I think about all this and I'm like wait this is my like this is literally my life like my life is that I am surrounded by things that are amazing and magical and I have an abundance of food. So what the fuck? Like, what could I, what am I scared of? Like, this is, if, if my life stayed like this for forever, what is there to be afraid of? Nothing could harm. There's nothing, there's no fear. Um, and then I imagine like, okay, what if it got way worse though? Like, what if I got really sick? And what if I, I couldn't work and I couldn't move and I couldn't talk and like, I couldn't write on the internet or whatever? And then I think about what I would do and I'd, I'd go back home and I have some friends, some best friends who I've had since I was in middle school. Oh yeah. And this also imagines that my spouse dies too. So like, you know, my whole life falls apart. Like I don't have my wife anymore and I'm just totally alone in the world. Then it's like, I have best friends back in Arizona who would, even if I never worked another day in my life, they would take care of me. And so I think, well, would I be happy then? Would I be happy living with them in their home, which is has all these magical miracles and is also full of food, and they would take care of me? This is imagining that my parents die too. So like literally like my whole life, every possible horrible circumstance happens to me. And I imagine that world and I say, wow, I'd be happy. Like I would be happy because I would have best friends who would take care of me and they would they, I would have food and I would have everything I need. So it's like what what scenario could fuck up my kind of life? I just can't imagine one. Um, when I think about it from the perspective of my ancestors, like when I think of it from the perspective of like literally struggling to survive, there is nothing that could happen to me that would cause me to really struggle at that level. And I want to point out that that's an immense, immense privilege. And it's something that I take very seriously. And it's one of the reasons that I try to keep a low baseline because I want to be able to give this sort of security 
to as many people as possible. Like that's just gift. Um, and so for me, it's like a little bit of embodying like, okay, if I complained about this to my great, great, great grandfather, would he like right. smack me across the face and be like, what the hell are you talking about? You know, on a logical level, it makes sense. And yet, I think on the emotional level, or there, there's almost this uh, indescribable or th- this experience, experiential element that you can't pinpoint that still says, no, that's not right. Don't listen to what he's saying. Uh, there, there's this fear-based response yeah, to that. Yeah. And I think that's why, myself included, so many people don't go and do something like you're doing where you... Uh, you you quit your job and now you're working on this thing that like this is what you want to pour your life force into, but people uh, kind of recede from that because of the fear of the worst case scenario. It it may not even be the fear of the worst case scenario as much as it is kind of violating some ingrained financial and social norms. Um, how do if, yeah. if there is even a way? How do we um, kind of evangelize this mindset? To more, to more people or is it just ultimately a, a personal decision it's something you got to come come around to yourself i mean look if yeah. it doesn't feel right it's not right at the end of the day and so i think evangelism can be scary because sometimes it can say hey this is correct mm. even if you don't feel it i just think that's fundamentally wrong man like if you still feel anxiety about your financial situation or whatever it is then like you're listen like listen very carefully and take it seriously and i think that the more seriously you take it and like and when i say listen i mean articulate that right right out the specific anxieties like it should be as as easy or as accurate as like a bullet point list of what you need to do to fully resolve the anxiety and if you aren't at that level of clarity yet then like just keep journaling keep like thinking about it keep like chewing on it and taking it fully seriously um i think part of what can cause the problem is ignoring it and thinking this is irrational um, maybe it wouldn't be, it's not irrational. Like if you feel it there, there's probably something that it's trying to tell you, but, um, but I think one thing that can help is, is having community. I mean, one thing that can help is like, for me, the thing that ultimately provides the security is knowing that I have those friends back in Arizona, like those people who will be my friends for the rest of my life. And if I didn't have them, then none of the risks that I had taken since I dropped out of college would be possible at all. So just giving people that sense of family, I think is important. There's always one question I like to ask at the end uh, for every guest, which is what's one question you'd leave me and listeners with whether to think about or to act on? What's stopping you? Excellent. Andrew, this is so much fun. Thank you so much for having me on, Spencer. It was awesome. Thank you. We'll, uh, we'll talk soon.